Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Please keep your Bible open there at uh, Psalm 1. We'll be spending some time in it today. In February 1986, a car pulled up at an airport just outside Moscow. Some men got out, including a Jewish man who was a dissident. Uh, he was called Nathan Sharansky. He was being released after a nine-year imprisonment by the KGB. And as the press photographers moved closer to take a photo of the moment that he was released, Sharansky unexpectedly dropped onto the snow on his knees and he said something to the intelligence officer who was with him and there was obviously some kind of argument going on and Sharansky was refusing to budge. Then he lay down in the snow and shouted out, give me back my book of Psalms, my psalm book. Now this man had just finished a nine-year sentence in a Siberian labor camp. He was free to go. In a battle of wills with the authorities, he'd endured countless hours of interrogations. In fact, for a period of over a year, he was kept in a punishment cell, which was a room, a small, cold basement room, just six feet by six feet, on his own for a year. And his only companion in all of that time was a book of Psalms, the first of which Jess just read, a book of Psalms that his wife had given him. Now, Sharansky was not a particularly religious man. But as he began reading these psalms, he was astonished at how they spoke to him, at how relevant they were. He found that the bondage and the distress of the psalm writers matched his own bondage and distress. Their prayers became his prayers. Their glimmer of hope became hope for him. And after nine years, he was finally released. And he refused to go anywhere until the Soviet authorities had given him back his psalm book. They gave it to him. And on the plane to freedom, he opened the book to Psalm 30. He had vowed that if he was ever freed, he would read these words. I extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from Sheol, preserved me from going down into the pit. You see, the Psalms speak to us, and the Psalms speak for us. They speak to every experience of human life. There are songs of sheer delight and joy and praise, and there are songs of absolute misery in this book. They speak to every experience. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. And Psalm 88, the darkest of them all, you have taken my companions and my loved ones from me. Darkness is my only friend. You see, the Psalms 
speak to us and the Psalms speak for us. So we should learn to live in them. Now in the summertime, life slows down a bit for most people and there's a bit more time to reflect. There's time perhaps to retune, time to recalibrate a bit. I think it's, it's kind of funny, we tend to make resolutions at New Year, which is a, a logical time to do it. But in some ways, the summer is a better time for reflection and resolution. It's a good time to think about how life is going, about where we're heading, about our character, about our, our disciplines. It's a good time, if you're a Christian, to restore your spiritual rhythms or to put some good practices in place for the first time. So during this month of August, we're going to look at a few psalms together as a church. And can I encourage you to make them your daily bread. Don't just read them with us here on Sunday. Read them every day. If you're in a life group, would you talk about them in your group together? And I promise you, you will find food for your soul. We also have an uh, an opportunity to to pick up a resource here that um, a number of people in the church have been using and found it very, very helpful. This book uh, by Tim and Kathy Keller goes through all the Psalms Uh, One part for every day of the year, and it's one page a day, and there will be the section of the psalm, and then some explanation, very brief and very powerful, and then a short prayer. And I I, I, I just would bet anything that nobody here is too busy that they couldn't start the day with one page from this. And if you buy this, I promise you will be blessed uh, down to your cotton socks. So we've picked up, we've got ten copies just on sale or return. We're not making anything out of this. So they're £9 each if you'd like to pick one up. And don't wait until January 1st to start. Just start on August the 8th. My rock, my refuge, Tim and Kathy Keller. There's a devotional for you. So, back to business. Where should we start in our month of Psalms? I've got some words here from Alice in Wonderland. Begin at the beginning. Because Psalm 1 is the gateway, it's the doorway to all the others. And in some ways it's a bit like you're going in the door, and as you walk in you look up and there's a sign above. And it doesn't say, you know, be, be afraid all ye who enter here. It says, you need to read this and think about this before you go into the rest of the book. Because in the Psalms we're going to find the whole of life. And life is messy, isn't it? Life is full of turmoil, and we find people whose lives are full of turmoil in the Psalms. People who are confused, hurting, doubting. Their life's turned upside down. They're going through a long trial. They're sick, because that's what life is like. But before we get into all of that messy stuff, Psalm 1 says, just hold on a moment. There is an underlying reality that underpins the whole of life. Underneath appearances... Underneath the changing scenes of life, there is a reality about the kind of person you are, and about the kind of person you're becoming, and about the kind of life that you're living at the moment, and about your destiny. And Psalm 1 presents us with a choice. There are two ways to live. Which one will you choose? There's the way to flourish... Uh, Lakey would bring that up on the screen. The way to flourish, verses 1 to 3, and there's the way to perish, verses 4 to 6. The way to flourish and the way to perish. So look with me again at verses 1 to 3. Blessed or happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take 
or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now just imagine with me for a moment. You've got to use your imagination here. Uh, You're in an eastern country on a very hot day. You're in Greece or Turkey or Syria or Israel. And you're looking across the plains. And as you're looking across, you can see that kind of heat shimmering because it's so hot as the air seems to be shimmering as you look across. You can feel the heat rise. You can feel the sweaty palms. You can smell the dust. Everything around you is dry and brown. Even the grass looks like straw. Everything seems to be dry except for one thing, a tree. A tree, because this tree is planted by a stream or an irrigation channel flowing with constant water. It's flourishing. Its roots have gone down. Its leaves are green. It has grown tall and strong. And as you approach this tree to just get under the shade, you notice that there's lovely, luscious fruit just within reach. Now, that picture of the tree is what the righteous person is like, according to Psalm 1. The person whose life is right before God is like a tree. Now, just think about this image with me in verse 3 for a minute, will you? What do we notice about this picture of a tree? First of all, it is planted by streams of water. That means it's being nourished. It's being fed. It's got a source of life coming into it. It's got a constant connection to something that's life-giving. Whatever happens around it, this tree is still going to be fed and growing. Secondly, it yields its fruit in season. We just had the privilege of spending a couple of weeks in Portugal, in the hottest part of Portugal, during a heat wave. So we have this very strong resonance with this hot kind of climate. And walking along in a medieval village in in Portugal, and seeing, leaning over the back of people's garden walls, fruit trees bearing oranges, or lemons, or pomegranates, and other kinds of fruit just, just hanging there, waiting to be given. Now, what that shows you is that a tree is not just a kind of mechanical channel that takes water. A tree does something with the water. It draws it in, and then it transforms it into fruit that actually is delicious and is for the benefit and good of other people. Notice that in the psalm, these people who are like trees do this in season. In other words, it's not necessarily all the time. But in season, they will bear fruit, and they will help other people through that. Thirdly, the tree's leaf does not wither. In other words, this tree is going to be spared from the devastating effects of drought. It will survive. It will thrive and and prosper. It's well planted. It can stand the storms. It has health in it. It is flourishing. And finally, he says, moving away from the tree image for a moment, whatever these people do prospers. Whatever these people do prospers. Now that's interesting. Some of you may know that um, around the world at the moment is 
a message, a version of the Christian gospel that says God really wants you to be rich. God really wants you to be healthy all the time in this life, and he wants you to be rich. It's known as the prosperity gospel, and we've talked about it a bit in this church before. It's not the true gospel. It's an aberration. So what is he saying here? Is he suddenly wheeling out a bit of prosperity teaching? You know, Whatever they do prospers. Matt, you've got to go back into the work and claim that big bonus this week because God loves you and he wants you to be wealthy. He's thinking, that'd be nice. One way of understanding this is to find another place in the Bible that speaks in these terms. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says this. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Does that sound familiar? So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So what God says to Joshua there is, if you keep my word, if you study my word and dwell on it and think about it day and night, and you bring it into yourself and you obey it and keep it, you walk with me, then you will be prosperous and successful. It means that whatever you lay your hand to, you will accomplish it, you will succeed. So is this a prosperity message? Well, if your steps are being guided by God's word, if you've set your heart on delighting in God and what he wants, then what will your heart desire? What will your goals be? You'll be shaped to want what God wants, which is to be like him, to live a life of perfect love, to experience true community and share in it, to grow in grace, to grow in all the fruits of the Holy Spirit, to grow in Christian character. In other words, you will long to prosper in all the things that really matter. And God says, if you walk with him, you will prosper in those ways. So the righteous person is like a tree. They're planted by streams of water, gives them life. They're fruitful and they benefit other people. They have a stability and a strength that isn't withered by the drought. And they succeed in all the ways that really matter. Now, do you want a life like that? Do you want an authentic life? Do you want a deep, authentic life? Do you want your life, however many years you've got, to count Do you want to get sweeter and more lovely with age rather than shrivel up and get bitter and grumpy? Do you want a strength of character and a resilience in your core that can stay alive even in the drought times? Do you want to live well, to be a champion in the art of living? In other words, do you want to flourish? I know you do. We all want to flourish. We all put our roots down and try and find some water somewhere. Psalm 1 says, you have a choice to make if you want to flourish. And it is a choice that you have to make, take every single day. It's a choice between the ways of this world, the world without any thought of God, and the ways of God himself. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. See this choice, this contrast here. Uh, Verse 1 says, blessed is the one who does not Walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Walk, stand, sit. 
A lot of readers have seen a bit of a progression there. Here's somebody getting more and more familiar with the ways of this world. First of all, they're walking along with it. That means they're believing it. They're accepting the advice and opinions of those people in the world. Then they're standing in the, comp- the, the, uh, the way of the people. That means their, their behavior is going along with it. And finally, they're sitting with scoffers and scorners. This means they're now belonging to those people. That's where they belong. That's their spiritual, emotional home. Scorners, people who are characteristically cynical about God, challenging him and laughing at him. He's saying here, where's your basic loyalty? Where's your basic allegiance in life? Where do you find the place that shapes your beliefs, behavior, and where you belong? And he's saying, the happy life, the blessed life, the good life means not following the world in terms of your beliefs, your behavior, and your belonging. You've got to say no to some things. You've got to draw some lines. You've got to sometimes call a spade a spade. You've got to recognize that much of the behavior and the values and the beliefs of our friends and neighbors and colleagues, even family, are actually the opposite of what God wants for human life. The Bible sometimes calls it wickedness. Now, is this a challenge to some Christians here? Does it seem arrogant to say that people are wrong and even sinful and wicked? If you think back over your own Christian experience, have you compromised on some things in your beliefs or your behavior or where you belong? Is the sharp cutting edge of a holy life still present in your experience or has it been blunted? Are you at home with the people of this world? I think this can be more of a challenge to a church like ours, Grace Church people, than to other churches. We set great store on being in real relationship with non-believing people. We set great store on loving them genuinely and being friends. And being a friend with somebody means you're not trying to convert them and they're a project. They actually are your friend. We set great store on loving the city and serving the city. We are not a holy huddle that constantly emphasizes how separate we are and trying to pull away from the world and stay in a little ghetto. We try and mix in to the non-Christian world. But in the middle of all that, Christians like us, Grace Church people, can unconsciously start to get used to the conditions of the unbelieving world. You know, the, the proverbial frog They say that if you drop a frog into a pan of boiling water, it immediately jumps out. But if you put a frog into a pan of cold water and gradually turn the heat up, the frog stays there quite happy until it dies. We can get used to conditions around us that are actually sinful and unbelieving. So how are you doing on this, Grace Church people? Are you standing in the way that sinners take? Sitting in a seat of mockers? Walking in step with the wicked? Or are you walking with the Holy Spirit in company with people who don't know him yet? I'll ask you a couple of diagnostic questions. Who are your best and closest friends? They're the ones that will influence you the most. Have you grown as a Christian in the last year? Can you see evidence of that in your character? Are there sins that you've put away and repented of? Or have you not really grown? 
And thirdly, have any bits of your Bible practically fallen out? I don't mean literally, but are there parts of your Bible that you no longer believe you avoid them? See, here's a kind of a negative teaching. If we want to live the blessed life, the happy life, don't walk in step with non-believing people. Don't stand in the way. Don't sit in their company. Guard your heart because out of it comes all the wellsprings of life. But the positive teaching is very positive and very simple. Verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The way to flourish is to delight in something called the law of the Lord and to meditate on it day and night. Now what does this mean? The word law is quite an unhelpful translation there. It would be better translated instruction. Instruction. Here it means the whole of the Bible, everything that God has given us about himself. All that God has revealed in this book is his law. So he's saying, if you want to live a happy life, the blessed life, delight in this word. Delight in this instruction and meditate on it. Now the word meditate in the Hebrew language literally means mutter. You ever seen people reading out loud and they're kind of muttering it? It's chewing it over. It's pondering. It's kind of bringing it into yourself and thinking it through. Meditating means to get to know God's word and then think through its implications for the whole of life. This is how we're going to live a flourishing life. It's to delight in God's word. And to meditate on it day and night through the whole of our experience. That's the way to flourish. Now, if this positive image of a tree wasn't motivating enough and all the benefits that come from it, the poet gives a warning too because he turns the flip side. He says there's another image here and it's not a positive one like a tree. It's the image of chaff. Chaff. Look with me again at verse 4. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. That the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Just imagine again an agricultural scene. It's harvest time, the sun's beating down, the fields are golden, and the, the laborers have been out all day long cutting down great sheaves of, of uh, wheat, and they've brought this golden wheat back, and they now bring it into the barn, but there's still work to be done. Because they have to separate out the grain, the good stuff that can be eaten, from the husks and the bits of straw and the worthless material. So they bring it in, and in the, in the ancient world, they bring it onto the threshing floor. And they get some big tools, and they would thresh this stuff, throwing it up into the air, until all the grain is separated, and all the worthless husks, bits of straw, chaff, had been blown away by the wind. And they were left with the valuable material. Now here's a contrasting image to a tree. According to this poet, according to the Bible, the wicked way of life is like chaff, which the wind blows away. Chaff is rootless. It is weightless. It is worthless. It's talking about people's way of life that is actually useless. 
This is what the godless way of life actually adds up to. It is a big zero. It is a, a nothing. It has no substance. It goes nowhere. It's only fit for burning. Now, you know it doesn't always look like that. Plenty of people in this world look very weighty. Plenty of people in this world have great substance and influence. Their opinions seem to count. They have real virtue. And by God's grace, his common grace, they do. God is at work in his world all the time to preserve what is good and to restrain human evil from reaching its limits. But when it is weighed in the scales, human life, which is lived without God, according to the Bible, is absolutely worthless. There's a scene in the Old Testament book of Daniel where a great king, wealthy and influential, one of the rulers and the great ones of the world, called Belshazzar, holds a great feast, and he's displaying how rich he is. And he has this enormous feast, and they're drinking from the temple vessels that made out of gold and drinking the finest wines and generally having a big party. And then, during the feast, a hand appears, and it writes on the wall these words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. And the king is absolutely terrified. He calls for all his wise men, but they don't know how to read this language. And so he then he speaks to his wife. Always a good idea. You should do that first of all. And the queen says, you need to talk to Daniel, one of the Hebrews. He, he's renowned for being really wise. And so Daniel comes, and he looks at the writing on the wall. That's where we get the phrase, the writing on the wall, by the way. He looks at this writing on the wall, and he says, remember your father, Nebuchadnezzar, when he became arrogant, God threw him down until he learned that God was the real king over the kings of men. And Belshazzar had blasphemed God and gone against him, and so God had sent this message. And the message said, you've been numbered, you've been weighed, you've been found wanting, and your kingdom will be given over to the Medes and Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar, the king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received his kingdom. Life lived without God, without serving the true God, is not going anywhere. It has no root. It has no future. It doesn't bear godly character and fruit. It is ultimately self-serving. It is self-centered, and therefore it is useless. It is like chaff. Now, if you are not a Christian here today and you're looking into the faith, I want to ask you a very serious question. Have you ever pondered what God thinks of your life? See, you think you're investigating God, and by his grace, you're free to inquire, and maybe he's drawing you to himself. That's why you're here today. But have you ever thought what God thinks of you? See, any life that's lived without Jesus Christ at the center of it, according to this word, is futile and empty and destined for burning. The godless way of life is the way to perish. Don't take that road. So that leaves us, thirdly and finally, with a choice to make. A choice to make. Whose way will I follow? Whose voice will I listen to? Who will shape the culture of my heart and my home? Who will I walk with and keep in step with day by day? Who will I obey? Who will I follow? And we all need to make this choice every single day.
And the poet calls us to choose the way to flourish by delighting in the instruction of God's word and by meditating on it day and night, thinking through its implications for the whole of life. Now, how do we do that? I'll give you two Ds, very simple, just to take away. We do it by our devotions and by our deliberations. First of all, devotions. Setting aside time, quiet time, just between you and your God. To remember him, to listen to him, to hear his voice again. Often it's good to do this in the morning before your day really begins. Now you may have young children, you may be doing nights, you may have, be working 90 hours a week as a doctor. I know the pressures that you're under, but I do know this, we can all devote ourselves to something. So let's devote ourselves, Christian friends, to walking with this God, to delighting in his word, to hearing him speak to us day by day. And this book that we've mentioned today is one among many resources that you can choose to help you get on with that. Let's be people who are devoted to him. And then devotions and deliberations. Deliberations. Bringing thoughtfully and doing the hard work of thinking about how every area of my life should be shaped and governed by the word of God. Let's give you one example. could choose a hundred, but one example from, from conversations with people in the church in the last few months uh, strikes me this is something that is worth mentioning, which is the whole area of sex, romance, and marriage. Sex, romance, and marriage. Now, what does the Bible have to say about this? According to the Bible... Sex and romance belong in the context of marriage. One man, one woman for life. And the nature of their relationship, according to the Bible, is called a covenant. A covenant is a formal, binding, serious, solemn kind of a relationship. It's a bit like a treaty. It's legally binding. And in the Bible, a man and wife, a husband and wife, are bound together in covenant. Now, a covenant is... More formal than just a relationship, but it's also more intimate than just a treaty or a, a promise. It's a personal, binding, deeply committed, and lifelong relationship. That is the essential nature of marriage in the Bible. And in that context, according to the Bible, romance flourishes and sex both has its proper function and supports the marriage. Now, just set that picture of what sex, romance, and marriage are all about in the picture of sex, romance, and marriage from the Western world, which says sex, romance, and marriage are all about you being satisfied and your intensity of your emotions and your feelings so that... You need to find the person who's going to make you feel best about yourself and most excited about the world and about life and then go and stick with them for as long as it lasts. But if the feelings fade, you can always go and find somebody else. That is an entirely different view of that area of our lives than the, the view of the, the Bible. And let me just say that, especially to you younger people who are single and thinking this kind of thing through, the Bible's way, which is so different to our worldview from our culture, is the place that marriage flourishes because it's committed. 
Because it's there for the long haul. Because it's not dependent on how you feel today or tomorrow. It is there bound together in a loving covenant to serve each other for the glory of God. Now that's just one area where we would deliberate and think through what God has to say about that area of my experience. You could talk about your relationship to power. You could talk about your relationship to money. Your relationship to family. You mentioned it, your relationship to your work and your career or your studies. The Bible speaks into the whole of life. So it says here, in the doorway above the Psalms, delight in the instruction of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. And then you'll be like a tree and you will flourish. In closing... I want to say just a word because whenever we read the Old Testament, we need to be careful that we're not just reading it as pious Jewish people would. Because we are not just dealing with the Old Testament. We come to this book, this this Old Testament, as Christians. We come to it reading it through the, the lens of an empty tomb. We are people of Jesus Christ. How does knowing Jesus make this psalm different for me? Here are two things. Firstly, I remember that Jesus himself kept God's word. He was the one who delighted in the law of God. He quoted it all the time and lived his life around it and based his existence on it. He was the one who embodied it. But secondly, it's that Jesus Christ is himself the word of God to us. Not just in a book, but in a person. So when we come to him and we're approaching Jesus and thinking about him, then we delight in the word of God. And then we see how life is supposed to be lived, like our Lord, our Savior, and our friend. Let's pray together, shall we? Happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his Lord day and night. That person is like a tree, planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Heavenly Father, we want to be like those trees. We want our lives to count. We want to bear fruit. We want to grow. We want to be healthy. We want to have something to give to other people. We want to have life. So we pray. Uh, If we need to reset the compass today, if we need to repent of some bad habits or sins, if we need to draw near to you once again, that you'd help us to do that. That even during this next time of sung worship, you'd be here present ministering to us by your spirit to draw us to Jesus, to make us more like him and to give glory to you. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.